The Apostate, Part 2 In 1986, Haggis appeared on the cover of the Scientology magazine Celebrity. The accompanying article lauded his rising influence in Hollywood. He had escaped the cartoon ghetto after selling a script to The Love Boat. He had climbed the ladder of network television, writing movies of the week and children's shows before settling into sitcoms. He worked on different strokes and one day at a time, then became the executive producer of The Facts of Life. The magazine noted, He is one of the few writers in Hollywood who has major credits in all genres, comedy, suspense, human drama, animation. In the article Haggis said of Scientology, What excited me about the technology was that you could actually handle life and your problems and not have them handle you. He added, I also like the motto, Scientology makes the able more able. He credited the church for improving his relationship with Geddes. Instead of fighting, we did a lot of that before Scientology philosophy, we now talk things out, listen to each other, and apply Scientology technology to our problems. Haggis told Celebrity that he had recently gone through the Purification Rundown, a program intended to eliminate body toxins that form a biochemical barrier to spiritual well-being. For an average of three weeks, participants undergo a lengthy daily regimen, combining sauna visits, exercise, and huge doses of vitamins, especially niacin. According to a forthcoming book, Inside Scientology, by the journalist Janet Reitman, the sauna sessions can last up to five hours a day. In the interview, Haggis recalled being skeptical. My idea of doing good for my body was smoking low-tar cigarettes, but said that the purification rundown was wonderful. He went on, I really did feel more alert and more aware and more at ease. I wasn't running in six directions to get something done or bouncing off the walls when something went wrong. Haggis mentioned that he had taken drugs when he was young. Getting rid of all those residual toxins and medicines and drugs really had an effect, he said. After completing the rundown, I drank a diet cola and suddenly could really taste it, every single chemical. He recommended the rundown to others, including his mother, who at the time was seriously ill. He also persuaded a young writer on his staff to take the course in order to wean herself from various medications. She could tell Scientology worked by the example I set, Haggis told the magazine. That made me feel very good. Privately, he told me, he remained troubled by the church's theology, which struck him as intergalactic spirituality. He was grateful, however, to have an auditor who was really smart, sweet, thoughtful. I could always go to talk to him. The confessionals were helpful. It just felt better to get things off my chest. Even after his incredulous reaction to OT3, he continued to move up the bridge. He saw so many intelligent people on the path and expected that his concerns would be addressed in future levels. He told himself, maybe there is something and I'm just missing it. He felt unsettled by the lack of irony among many fellow Scientologists and inability to laugh at themselves, which seemed at odds with the character of Hubbard himself. When Haggis felt doubts about the religion, he recalled 16-millimeter films he had seen of Hubbard's lectures from the 50s and 60s. He had this amazing buoyancy, Haggis says. 
He had a deadpan humor and the sense of himself that seemed to say, yes, I am fully aware that I might be mad, but I also might be onto something. Haggis finally reached the top of the operating Thetan pyramid. According to documents obtained by WikiLeaks, the activist group run by Julian Assange, the final exercise is, go out to a park, train station, or other busy area. Practice placing an intention into individuals until you can successfully and easily place an intention onto or on a being and or a body. Haggis expected that, as an OT7, he would feel a sense of accomplishment. But he remained confused and unsatisfied. He thought that Hubbard was brilliant in so many ways, and that the failing must be his. At one point, he confided to a minister in a church that he didn't think he should be a Scientologist. She told him, There are all sorts of Scientologists, just as there are all sorts of Jews and Christians, with varying levels of faith. The implication, Haggis said, was that he could pick and choose which tenets of Scientology to believe. Haggis was a workaholic, and his career took off as he spent less and less time with his family. He never got home till late at night or early in the morning, his oldest daughter Alyssa said. All the time I ever spent with him was on the set. Haggis frequently brought his daughters to work and assigned them odd jobs. Alyssa earned her director's guild card when she was 15. In 1987, Ed Zwick and Marshall Herskovitz, the creators of the new series 30-something, hired Haggis to write scripts. When I talked to them recently, Herskovitz recalled, Paul walked in the door and said, I love the fact that you guys are doing a show all about emotions. I don't like talking about my emotions. In the show's first season, one of Haggis's scripts won an Emmy. Since he rarely discussed his religion, his bosses were surprised to learn of his affiliation. Herskovitz told me, The thing about Paul is his particular sense of humor, which is ironic, self-deprecating. And raw, Zwick interjected. It's not a sense of humor you often encounter among people who believe in Scientology, Herskovitz continued. His way of looking at life didn't have that sort of straight-on, unambiguous, unambivalent view that so many Scientologists project. Observing Zwick and Herskovitz at work got Haggis interested in directing, and when the church asked him to make a 30-second ad about Dianetics, he seized the chance. He was determined to avoid the usual claim that Dianetics offered a triumphal march toward enlightenment. He shot a group of Scientologists talking about the principal ways that they had used Dianetics. It was very naturalistic, he recalls. Church authorities hated it. They thought it looked like an AA meeting. The spot never aired. In 1992, he helped out on the pilot for Walker, Texas Ranger, a new series starring Chuck Norris. It ran for eight seasons and was broadcast in a hundred countries. Haggis was credited as co-creator. It was the most successful thing I ever did, he says. Two weeks of work. They never even used my script. With his growing accomplishments and wealth, Haggis became a bigger prize for the church. In 1988, Scientology sponsored a Dianetics car in the Indianapolis 500. David Miscavige was at the race. It was one of the few times that he and Haggis met. They sat near each other at a Scientology-sponsored dinner event before the race. Paul takes no shit from anybody, the organizer of the event recalled. 
several times when Miskevich made some comment during the dinner, the organizer said. Paul challenged him in a lighthearted way. His tone was perceived as insufficiently differential. Afterward, Miskevich demanded to know why Haggis had been invited. Miskevich declined request to speak to me, and Tommy Davis says that Miskevich did not attend the event. The organizer told me, You have to understand, no one challenges David Miskevich. Haggis's marriage had long been troubled, and he and his wife were entering a final state of estrangement. One day, Haggis flew to New York with a casting director, who was also a Scientologist. They shared a kiss. Haggis felt bad about it and confessed to it during an ethics session. He was given instruction on how to fix the problem. It didn't work. He had a series of liaisons, each of which he confessed. Yet, perhaps because of his fame, he was not made to atone for what Scientologists call out-ethics behavior. Haggis and Geddes began a divorce battle that lasted nine years. Their three girls lived with Geddes, visiting Haggis occasionally. Geddes enrolled them in private schools that used Hubbard's educational system, which is called Study Tech. It is one of the more grounded systems that he developed. There are three central elements. One is use of clay or other materials to help make difficult concepts less abstract. Alyssa explains, If I'm learning the idea of how an atom looks, I'd make an atom out of clay. A second concept is making sure that students don't face too steep a gradient, in Hubbard's words. The schools are set up so that you don't go to the next level until you completely understand the material, Alyssa says. The third element is the frequent use of a dictionary to eliminate misunderstandings. It's really important to understand the words you're using. Lauren, the middle sister, initially struggled in school. I was illiterate until I was 11, she told me. Somehow that fact escaped her parents. I assumed it was because of the divorce, she says. When the divorce became final in 1997, Haggis and Geddes were ordered by the court to undergo psychological evaluations, a procedure abhorred by Scientologists. The court then determined that Haggis should have full custody of the children. His daughters were resentful. They had lived their entire lives with their mother. I didn't even know why he wanted us, Lawrence says. I didn't really know him. Haggis put his daughters in an ordinary private school, but that lasted only six months. The girls weren't entirely comfortable talking to people who weren't Scientologists, and basic things like multiple-choice tests were unfamiliar. At a regular school, they felt like outsiders. The first thing I noticed that I did that others didn't is the contact, Alyssa told me, referring to a procedure the church calls contact assist. If you hurt yourself, the first thing I and other Scientology kids do is go quiet. Scientology preaches that if you touch the wound to the object that caused the injury and silently concentrate, the pain lessens and a sense of trauma fades. The girls demanded to be sent to boarding school, so Haggis enrolled them at the Delphian School in rural Oregon, which uses Hubbard's study tech methods. The school, Lauren says, is on top of a hill in the middle of nowhere. She added, I lived in a giant bubble. Everyone I knew was a Scientologist. 
For one course, she decided to write a paper about discrimination against various religions, including Scientology. I wanted to see what the opposition was saying, so I went online, she says. Another student turned her into the school's ethics committee. Information that doesn't correspond to Scientology teachings is termed entheta, meaning confused or destructive thinking. Lauren agreed to stop doing research. It was really easy not to look, she says. By the time she graduated from high school, at the age of 20, she had scarcely ever heard anyone speak ill of Scientology. Alyssa was a top student at Delphian, but she found herself moving away from the church. She still believed in some ideas promoted by Scientology, such as reincarnation, and she liked Hubbard's educational techniques. But by the time she graduated, she no longer defined herself as a Scientologist. Her reasoning was true to Hubbard's philosophy. A core concept in Scientology is, something isn't true unless you find it true in your own life, she told me. After starting boarding school, Alyssa did not speak to her father for a number of years. She was angry about the divorce. Haggis mined the experience for the script of Million Dollar Baby, in which the lead character, played by Clint Eastwood, is haunted by his estrangement from his daughter. I'm very proud of Alyssa for not talking to me, Haggis told me, his eyes welling with tears. Think what that takes. It was the only time in our many conversations that he displayed such emotion. Haggis and Alyssa slowly resumed communication. When Alyssa was in her early 20s, she accepted the fact that, like her sister Katie, she was gay. She recalls, When I finally got the courage to come out to my dad, he said, Oh, yeah, I knew that. Now, Alyssa says, she and Haggis have a working relationship. As she puts it, we do see each other for Thanksgiving and some meals. Recently, Alyssa, who is also a writer, has been collaborating on screenplays with her father. Haggis also gave her the role of a murderous drug addict in The Next Three Days. In 1991, as his marriage to Gaddis was crumbling, Haggis went to a Fourth of July party at the home of Scientologist friends. Deborah Rennard, who played J.R.'s alluring secretary on Dallas, was at the party. Rennard had grown up in a Scientology household and joined the church herself at the age of 17. In her early 20s, she studied acting at the Beverly Hills Playhouse and fell in love with Milton Katselis. They had recently broken up after a six-year romance. When I first met Paul, he was having a crisis of faith, Renard told me. He said he'd raced to the top of the bridge on faith, but he hadn't gotten what he expected. Haggis admitted to her, I don't believe I'm a spiritual being. I'm actually what you see. They became a couple and married in June 1997, immediately after Haggis' divorce from Gaddis became final. A son, James, was born the following year. Renard, concerned about her husband's spiritual doubts, suggested that he do some more study. She was having breakthroughs that sometimes led her to discover past lives. There were images, feelings, and thoughts that I suddenly realized, that's not here, I'm not in my body, I'm in another place, she told me. For instance, she might be examining what the church calls a contra-survival action. Like the time I clobbered Paul or threw something at him, and I'd look for an earlier similar. Suddenly, I'd realized I was doing something negative, and I'd be in England in the 1800s, 
I'd see myself harming this person. It was a fleeting glimpse at what I was doing then. Examining these moments helped the emotional charge dissipate. Paul would say, Don't you think you're making this up? She wondered if that mattered. If it changed me for the better, who cares, she says. When you are working on a scene as an actor, something similar happens. You get connected to a feeling from who knows where. Haggis and Renard shared a house in Santa Monica, which soon became a hub for progressive political fundraisers. Haggis lent his name to nearly any cause that espoused peace and justice. The Earth Communications Office, the Hollywood Education and Literacy Project, the Center for the Advancement of Nonviolence. Despite his growing disillusionment with Scientology, he also raised a significant amount of money for it and made sizable donations himself, appearing frequently on an honor roll of top contributors. The Church of Scientology had recently gained tax-exempt status as a religious institution, making donations, as well as the cost of auditing, tax-deductible. Church members had lodged more than 2,000 lawsuits against the Internal Revenue Service, ensnaring the agency in litigation. As part of the settlement, the church agreed to drop its legal campaign. Over the years, Haggis estimates, he spent more than $100,000 on courses and auditing, and $300,000 on various Scientology initiatives. Renard says that she spent about $150,000 on coursework. Haggis recalls that the demands for donations never seemed to stop. They used friends in any kind of pressure they could apply, he says. I gave them money just to keep them from calling and hounding me. A decade ago, Haggis moved into feature films. He co-wrote the scripts for the two most recent James Bond films, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace. He claims that Scientology has not influenced his work. There are no evident references in his movies, but his scripts often do have an autobiographical element. I'm not good at something unless it disturbs me, he said. In Million Dollar Baby, he wrote about a boxing coach who pulls the plug on a paralyzed fighter. Haggis made a similar choice in real life with his best friend, who was brain dead from a staph infection. They don't die easily, he said. Even in a coma, he kicked and moaned for 12 hours. Haggis likes to explore contradictions, making heroes into villains and vice versa, as with the racist cop in Crash played by Matt Dillon, who molests a woman in one scene and saves her life in another. In The Valley of Elah, Tommy Lee Jones plays a father trying to discover who murdered his son, a heroic soldier just returned from Iraq, only to learn that the sadism of the war had turned his son into a willing torturer. In 2004, Haggis was rewriting Flags of Our Fathers, a drama about Iwo Jima for Clint Eastwood to direct. Haggis shared credit with William Broyles, Jr. One day, Haggis and Eastwood visited the set of War of the Worlds, which Steven Spielberg was shooting with Tom Cruise. Haggis had met Cruise at a fundraiser and, a second time, at the Celebrity Center. Cruise says that he was introduced to the church in 1986 by his first wife, the actress Mimi Rogers. Rogers denies this. In 1992, he became the religion's most famous member, telling Barbara Walters that Hubbard's study tech methods had helped him overcome dyslexia. He's a major symbol of the church, and I think he takes that very seriously, Haggis said. 
Tommy Davis, at Cruz's request, was allowed to erect a tent on the set of Spielberg's War of the Worlds, where Scientology materials were distributed. That raised eyebrows in Hollywood. Haggis says that when he appeared on the set, Spielberg pulled him aside. It's really remarkable to me that I've met all these Scientologists, and they seem like the nicest people, Spielberg said. Haggis replied, Yeah, we keep all the evil ones in a closet. Spielberg's publicist says that Spielberg doesn't recall the conversation. A few days later, Haggis says, he was summoned to the Celebrity Center, where officials told him that Cruz was very upset. It was a joke, Haggis explained. Davis offers a different account. He says that Cruz mentioned the incident to him only in passing, but that he found the remark offensive. He confronted Haggis, who apologized profusely, asking that his contrition be relayed to anyone who might have been offended. Davis has known Cruz since Davis was 18 years old. They are close friends. The two men physically resemble each other, with long faces, strong jaws, and spiky haircuts. I saw him hanging out with Tom Cruise after the Oscars, Haggis recalls. At the Vanity Fair party, they were led in the back door. They arrived on motorcycles, really cool ones, like Ducatus. Cruz was also close to David Miscavige, and has said of him, I have never met a more competent, a more intelligent, a more tolerant, a more compassionate being outside of what I have experienced from LRH, and I have met the leader of leaders. In 2004, Cruz received a special Scientology award, the Freedom Medal of Valor. In a ceremony held in England, Miscavige called Cruz, the most dedicated Scientologist I know. The ceremony was accompanied by a video interview with the star, wearing a black turtleneck and with the theme music from Mission Impossible playing in the background. Cruz said, Being a Scientologist, you look at someone and you know absolutely that you can help them. So for me, it's really KSW, initials that stand for Keeping Scientology Working. He went on, That policy to me has really gone f He made a vigorous gesture with his hands. Boy, there's a time I went through and I said, You know what? When I read it, you know, I just went, Pooh, this is it. Later, when the video was posted on YouTube and viewed by millions who had no idea what he was talking about, Cruz came across as unhinged. He did not dispel this notion when, in 2005, during an interview with Oprah Winfrey, he jumped up and down on a couch while declaring his love for the actress Katie Holmes. He and Holmes married in 2006 in Italy. David Miscavige was his best man. Proposition 8, the California Initiative Against Gay Marriage, passed in November 2008. Haggis learned from his daughter Lauren of the San Diego chapter's endorsement of it. He immediately sent Davis several emails, demanding that the church take a public stand opposing the ban on gay marriage. I'm going to an anti-Prop 8 rally in a couple of hours, he wrote on November 11th after the election. When can we expect the public statement? In a response, Davis proposed sending a letter to the San Diego press, saying that the church had been erroneously listed among the supporters of Proposition 8. Erroneous doesn't cut it, Haggis responded. In another note, he remarked, the church may have had the luxury of not taking a position on this issue before, but after taking a position, even erroneously, it can no longer stand neutral. He demanded that the church openly declare that it supports gay rights.
Anything less won't do. Davis explained to Haggis that the church avoids taking overt political stands. He also felt that Haggis was exaggerating the impact of the San Diego endorsement. It was one guy who somehow got it in his head. It would be a neat idea and put the Church of Scientology San Diego on the list, Davis told me. When I found out, I had it removed from the list. Davis said that the individual who made the mistake, he didn't divulge the name, had been disciplined for it. I asked what that meant. He was sat down by a staff member of the local organization, Davis explained. He got sorted out. Davis told me that Haggis was mistaken about his daughter, having been ostracized by Scientologists. Davis said that he had spoken to the friend who had allegedly abandoned Katie, and the friend had ended the relationship, not because Katie was a lesbian, but because Katie had lied about it. Haggis, when informed of this account, laughed. As far as Davis was concerned, reprimanding the San Diego staff member was the end of the matter. I said, Paul, I've received no press inquiries. If I were to make a statement on this, it would actually be more attention to the subject than if we leave it be. Haggis refused to let the matter drop. This is not a PR issue. It's a moral issue, he wrote. He wrote in February 2009. In the final note of this exchange, he concluded, You were right. Nothing happened. It didn't flap. At least not very much. But I feel we shamed ourselves. Haggis sent this note six months before he resigned. Because he stopped complaining, Davis felt that the issue had been laid to rest. But far from putting the matter behind him, Haggis began his investigation into the church. His inquiry, much of it conducted online, mirrored the actions of the lead character he was writing for the next three days. The character, played by Russell Crowe, goes on the Internet to find a way to break his wife out of jail. Haggis soon found on YouTube the video of Tommy Davis talking on CNN about disconnection. The practice of disconnection is not unique to Scientology. The Amish, for example, cut themselves off from apostates, including their own children. Some Orthodox Jewish communities do the same. Renard had disconnected from her parents twice. When she was a young child, her stepfather had got the family involved with Scientology. When she was in her 20s and appearing on Dallas, her parents broke away from the church. Like many active members of Scientology, they had kept money in an account, in their case $2,500, for future courses they intended to take. Renard's mother took the money back. That's a huge deal for the church, Renard told me. She didn't speak to her parents for several years, assuming that they had been declared suppressive persons. In the early 90s, Renard wrote to the International Justice Chief, the Scientology official in charge of such matters. She was informed that she could talk to her parents again. A decade later, however, she went to Clearwater, intending to take some upper-level courses, and was told that the previous ruling no longer applied. If she wanted to do more training, she had to confront her parents' mistakes. The church recommended that she take a course called PTSSP, which stands for Potential Trouble Source, Suppressive Persons. That course took a year, Bernard told me. She petitioned officials at the Celebrity Center in Los Angeles for help. They put me on a program that took two years to complete, she says. Still, nothing changed. 
If she failed to handle her parents, she would have to disconnect, not only from them, but also from everyone who spoke to them, including her siblings. It was that, or else I had to give up being a Scientologist, she says. Renard's parents were among the 400 claimants in a lawsuit brought against Scientology by disaffected members in 1987. The case was thrown out of court the following year for lack of evidence. To make amends, Renard's parents had to denounce the anti-Scientologist group and offer a token restitution. The Church prescribes a seven-step course of rehabilitation, called A to E, for penitents seeking to get back into its good graces, which includes returning debts and making public declarations of error. Renard told her parents that if they wanted to remain in contact with her, they had to follow the Church's procedures. Her parents, worried that they would also be cut off from their grandson, agreed to perform community service. They really wanted to work it out with me, she says. But the church wasn't satisfied. Renard was told that if she maintained contact with her parents, she would be labeled a potential trouble source, a designation that would alienate her from the Scientology community and render her ineligible for further training. It was clearly laid out for me, she says. A senior official counseled her to agree to have her parents formally branded as SPs. Until then, they won't turn around and recognize their responsibilities, he said. Okay, fine, Renard said. Go ahead and declare them. Maybe it'll get better. She was granted permission to begin upper-level coursework in Clearwater. In August 2006, a notice was posted at the Celebrity Center declaring Renard's parents suppressive persons saying that they had associated with squirrels, which in Scientology refers to people who have dropped out of the church but continue to practice unauthorized auditing. A month later, Renard's parents sent her a letter. We tried to do what you asked, Deborah. We worked the whole month of July and August on A through E. They explained that they had paid the church the $2,500. After all that, they continued a church adjudicator had told them to hand out 300 copies of L. Ron Hubbard's pamphlet, The Way to Happiness, to libraries. They had also been told to document the exchange with photographs. They had declined. If this can't be resolved, we will have to say goodbye to you, and James will lose his grandparents, her mother wrote. This is ridiculous. In April 2007, Renard's parents sued for the right to visit their grandson. Renard had to hire an attorney. Eventually, the church relented. She was summoned to a church mission in Santa Monica and shown a statement rescinding the ruling that her parents were SPs. Tommy Davis sent me some policy statements that Hubbard had made about disconnection in 1965. Anyone who rejects Scientology also rejects, knowingly or unknowingly, the protection and benefits of Scientology and the companionship of Scientologists. Hubbard writes, In Introduction to Scientology Ethics, Hubbard defined disconnection as a self-determined decision made by an individual that he is not going to be connected to another. Scientology defectors are full of tales of forcible family separations, which the Church almost uniformly denies. Two former leaders in the Church, Marty Rathbun and Mike Rinder, told me that families are sometimes broken apart. In their cases, their wives chose to stay in the church when they left. The wives and the church denounced Rathbun and Rinder as liars. 
A few days after sending the resignation letter to Tommy Davis, Haggis came home from work to find nine or ten of his Scientology friends standing in his front yard. He invited them in to talk. Ann Archer was there with Terry Jastro, her husband, an actor turned producer and director. Paul had been such an ally, Archer told me. It was pretty painful. Everyone wanted to see if there could be some kind of resolution. Mark Isham, an Emmy-winning composer who has scored films for Haggis, came with his wife, Donna. Sky Dayton, the Earthlink founder, was there, along with several other friends and a church representative Haggis didn't know. His friends could have served as an advertisement for Scientology. They were wealthy high achievers with solid marriages who embraced the idea that the church had given them a sense of well-being and the skills to excel. Scientologists are trained to believe in their persuasive powers and the need to keep a positive frame of mind. But the mood in the room was downbeat, and his friend's questions were full of reproach. Gastro asked Haggis, Do you have any idea that what you might do might damage a lot of pretty wonderful people and your fellow Scientologists? Haggis reminded the group that he had been with them at the 1985 Freedom March in Portland. They knew all about his financial support of the church and the occasions when he had spoken out in its defense. Jastro remembers Haggis saying, I love Scientology. Archer had a particular reason to feel aggrieved. Haggis's letter had called her son a liar. Paul was very sweet, she says. We didn't talk about Tommy. She understood that Haggis was upset about the way Proposition 8 had affected his gay daughters, but she didn't think it was relevant to Scientology. The church is not political, she told me. We have tons of friends and relatives who are gay. It's not the church's issue. I've introduced gay friends to Scientology. Isham was frustrated. We weren't breaking through to him, he told me. Of all the friends present, Isham was the closest to Haggis. We share a common artistic sensibility, Isham said. When he visited Abbey Road Studios in England to record the score that he had written for In the Valley of Elah, Haggis went along with him. Haggis wanted him to compose the score for the next three days. Now their friendship was at risk. Isham used Scientology to analyze the situation. In his view, Haggis' emotions at that moment ranked 1.1 on the tone scale, the state that is sometimes called covertly hostile. By adopting a tone just above it, anger, Isham hoped to blast Haggis out of the psychic space where he seemed to be lodged. This was an intellectual decision, Isham said. I decided I would be angry. Paul, I'm pissed off, Isham told Haggis. There's a better way to do this. If you have a complaint, there's a complaint line. Anyone who genuinely wanted to change Scientology should stay within the organization, Isham argued, not quit. Certainly, going public was not helpful. Haggis listened patiently. A fundamental tenet of Scientology is that differing points of view must be fully heard and acknowledged. When his friends finished, however, Haggis had his own set of grievances. He referred them to the expose in the St. Petersburg Times that had so shaken him. The Truth Rundown The first installment had appeared in June 2009. Haggis had learned from reading it that several of the church's top managers had defected in despair. Marty Rathbun had once been Inspector General of the Church's Religious Technology Center, which holds the trademarks of Scientology and Dianetics, and exists 
to protect the public from misapplication of the technology. Rathbun had also overseen Scientology's legal defense strategy and reported directly to Miscavige. Amy Scobie had been an executive in the Celebrity Center network. Mike Rinder had been the church's spokesperson, the job now held by Tommy Davis. One by one, they had disappeared from Scientology, and it had never occurred to Haggis to ask where they had gone. The defectors told the newspaper that Miscavige was a serial abuser of his staff. The issue wasn't the physical pain of it, Rinder said. It's the fact that the domination you're getting, hit in the face, kicked, and you can't do anything about it. If you did try, you'd be attacking the COB, the chairman of the board. Tom DeVolt, a defector who had been a manager at the Clearwater Spiritual Center, told the paper that he too had been beaten by Miscavige. He said that from 2003 to 2005, he had witnessed Miscavige striking other staff members as many as a hundred times. Rathbun, Rinder, and DeVolt all admitted that they had engaged in physical violence themselves. It had become the accepted way of doing things, Rinder said. Amy Scobie said that nobody challenged the abuse because people were terrified of Miscavige. Their greatest fear was expulsion. You don't have any money, you don't have job experience, you don't have anything, and he could put you on the streets and ruin you. Assessing the truthfulness of such inflammatory statements made by people who deserted the church or were expelled was a challenge for the newspaper, which has maintained a special focus on Scientology. Clearwater is 20 miles northwest of downtown St. Petersburg. In 1998, six years before he defected, Rathbun told the paper that he had never seen Miscavige hit anyone. Now, he said, that was the biggest lie I ever told you. The reporters behind The Truth Rundown, Joe Childs and Thomas Tobin, interviewed each defector separately and videotaped many of the sessions. It added a measure of confidence, Childs told me. Their stories just tracked. Much of the alleged abuse took place at the Gold Base, a Scientology outpost in the desert near Hemet, a town 80 miles southeast of Los Angeles. Miscavige has an office there and the site features, among other things, movie studios and production facilities for the church's many publications. For decades, the base's location was unknown, even to many church insiders. Haggis visited the Gold Base only once, in the early 80s, when he was about to direct a Scientology commercial. The landscape, he said, suggested a spa, beautiful and restful, but he found the atmosphere sterile and scary. Surrounded by a security fence, the base houses about 800 Sea Org members in quarters that the church likens to those in a convent or seminary, albeit much more comfortable. According to a court declaration filed by Rathbun in July, Miscavige expected Scientology leaders to instill aggressive, even violent discipline. Rathbun said that he was resistant and that Miscavige grew frustrated with him, assigning him in 2004 to the whole a pair of double-wide trailers at the gold base. There were between 80 and 100 people sentenced to the hole at that time, Rathbun said in the declaration. We were required to do group confessions all day and all night. The church claims that such stories are false. There is not and has never been any place of confinement, nor is there anything in church policy that would allow such confinement. 
According to Rathbun, Miscavige came to the hole one evening and announced that everyone was going to play musical chairs. Only the last person standing would be allowed to stay on the base. He declared that people whose spouses were not participants would have their marriages terminated. The St. Petersburg Times noted that Miscavige played Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody on a boombox as the church leaders fought over the chairs, punching each other and, in one case, ripping a chair apart. Tom DeVocht, one of the participants, says that the event lasted until four in the morning. It got more and more physical as the number of chairs went down. Many of the participants had long been cut off from their families. They had no money, no credit cards, no telephones. According to DeVocht, many lacked a driver's license or a passport. Few had any savings or employment prospects. As people fell out of the game, Miscavige had airline reservations made for them. He said that buses were going to be leaving at six in the morning. The powerlessness of everyone else in the room was nakedly clear. Tommy Davis told me that a musical chairs episode did occur. He explained that Miscavige had been away from the gold base for some time, and when he returned, he discovered that in his absence, many jobs had been reassigned. The game was meant to demonstrate that even seemingly small changes can be disruptive to an organization underscoring an administrative policy of the church. The rest of the defectors' accounts, Davis told me, was hoo-ha. Chairs being ripped apart and people being threatened that they're going to be sent to far-flung places in the world, plane tickets being purchased, and they're going to force their spouses, and on and on and on. I mean, it's just nuts. Jefferson Hawkins, a former Sea Org member and church executive who worked with Haggis on the rejected Dianetics ad campaign, told me that Miscavige had struck or beaten him on five occasions, the first time in 2002. I had just written an infomercial, he said. Miscavige summoned him to a meeting where a few dozen members were seated on one side of a table. Miscavige sat by himself on the other side. According to Hawkins, Miscavige began a tirade about the ad's shortcomings. Hawkins recalls, Without any warning, he jumped up onto the conference table, and he launches himself at me. He knocks me back against a cubicle wall and starts battering my face. The two men fell to the floor, Hawkins says, and their legs became entangled. Let go of my legs, Miscavige shouted. According to Hawkins, Miscavige then stomped out of the room leaving Hawkins on the floor, shocked and bruised. The others did nothing to support him, he claims. They were saying, get up, get up. I asked Hawkins why he hadn't called the police. He reminded me that church members believe that Scientology holds the key to salvation. Only by going through Scientology will you reach spiritual immortality. You can go from life to life without being cognizant of what is going on. If you don't go through Scientology, you're condemned to dying over and over again in ignorance and darkness, and never knowing your true nature as a spirit. Nobody who is a believer wants to lose that. Miscavige, Hawkins says, holds the power of eternal life and death over you. Moreover, Scientologists are taught to handle internal conflicts within the Church's own justice system. Hawkins told me that if a Sea Org member sought help outside, he would be punished, either by being declared a suppressive person or by being sent off to do manual labor, as Hawkins was made to do after Miscavige beat him. The church denies that Hawkins was mistreated, 
and notes that he has participated in protests organized by Anonymous, a hacktivist collective that has targeted Scientology. The group pugnaciously opposes censorship and became hostile towards Scientology after the church invoked copyright claims in order to remove from the Internet the video of Tom Cruise extolling KSW. The church describes Anonymous as a cyber-terrorist group. Last month, the FBI raided the homes of three dozen members after Anonymous attacked the websites of corporations critical of WikiLeaks. Two members of Anonymous have pleaded guilty to participating in a 2008 attack on a Scientology website. The church provided me with 11 statements from Scientologists, all of whom said that Miscavige had never been violent. One of them, Yael Lustgarden, said that she was present at the meeting with Hawkins and that the attack by Miscavige never happened. She claims that Hawkins made a mess of his presentation. He smelled of body odor. He was unshaven. His voice tone was very low, and he could hardly be heard and was admonished to shape up. She says that Hawkins wasn't hit by anyone. The defector, Amy Scobie, however, says that she witnessed the attack. The two men had fallen into her cubicle. After the altercation, she says, I gathered all the buttons from Jeff's shirts and the change from his pockets and gave them back to him. The church characterizes Scobie, Rinder, Rathbun, Hawkins, DeVault, Hines, and other defectors I spoke with as discredited individuals who were demoted for incompetence or expelled for corruption. The defectors' accounts are consistent only because they have banded together to advance and support each other's false stories. After reading the St. Petersburg Times series, Haggis tracked down Marty Rathbun, who was living on Corpus Christi Bay in South Texas. Rathbun had been making ends meet by writing freelance articles for local newspapers and selling beer at a ballpark. Haggis complained that Davis hadn't been honest with him about Scientology's policies. I said, that's not Tommy. He has no say. Rathbun told me, Miscavige is a total micromanager. I explained the whole culture. He says that Haggis was shocked by the conversation. The thing that was most troubling to Paul was that I literally had to escape, Rathbun told me. A few nights after the musical chairs incident, he got on his motorcycle and waited until a gate was open for someone else. He sped out and didn't stop for 30 miles. Haggis called several other former Scientologists he knew well. One of them said that he had escaped from the gold base by driving his car, an Alfa Romeo convertible, that Haggis had sold him through a wooden fence. The defector said that he had scars on his forehead from the incident. Still others had been expelled or declared suppressive persons. Haggis asked himself, What kind of organization are we involved in where people just disappear? End of Part 2